Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for July 5th through 11th, 2021. This is covering Doctrine and Covenants, Section 76. Woohoo! And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Oh, boy, Scripture, we are so excited about what you're going to teach us today. Oh, this is so exciting. And now, let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 21 minutes, 14 seconds. Fantastic. And what about daily? What would it be? That would be 3 minutes, 2 seconds. Perfect. Easy reading for such an important revelation. We don't even need time codes. Just jump right into Doctrine and Covenants 76. This revelation is known as the vision. When we speak of the vision in the church today, everybody probably thinks of the first vision. But if you were to ask the saints in the early days of the church about the vision, this is the revelation they would be talking about. Now, we know this revelation today as section 76 in the Doctrine and Covenants, but fun fact, when it was first published in the Doctrine and Covenants in 1835, it was actually section 91. Interesting. It's changed a few times. Interesting. Also, we will be taking our background information from various church sources, but I really recommend, if you're interested in this topic, read the whole article in the Revelations in Context in your Gospel Library app. If you're interested in even more detail, we'll link it in the description to make sure you get to it. Let's begin, though, with some background information from the Institute Student Manual. In early 1832, the Prophet Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were working on the translation of the New Testament in Hiram, Ohio, at the home of John and Alice Elsa Johnson. During this intensive study of the Scriptures, the prophet reflected on the many truths that the Lord had revealed to the saints and observed it was apparent that many important points touching the salvation of man had been taken from the Bible or lost before it was compiled. One of the questions Joseph and Sidney were pondering during this time was what happens after death. The truths regarding life after death given through Revelation led the prophet to observe that If God rewarded everyone according to the deeds done in the body, the term heaven, as intended for the saints' eternal home, must include more kingdoms than one. On February 16, 1832, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were translating John 5, verse 29, which states that the dead shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. Now from saints, we also get the story of how this revelation was received, and it's very unique. This is from Saints Volume 1, Chapter 14. As they read in the Gospel of John about the resurrection of just and unjust souls, Joseph wondered if there was not more to know about heaven or the salvation of mankind. If God rewarded his children according to their deeds on earth, were traditional notions of heaven and hell too simple? On February 16th, Joseph Sidney and about 12 other men sat in an upstairs room in the Johnson home. The spirit rested on Joseph and Sidney, and they grew still as a vision opened before their eyes. The glory of the Lord surrounded them, and they saw Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, Angels worshipped at his throne, and a voice testified that Jesus was the only begotten of the Father. What do I see? Joseph asked as he and Sidney marveled at the wonders they saw. He then described what he beheld in the vision, and Sidney said, I see the same. Sidney then asked the same question and described the scene before him. Once he finished, Joseph said, I see the same. They spoke like this for an hour. And their vision revealed that God's plan of salvation started before life on earth and that his children would be resurrected after death through the power of Jesus Christ. They also described heaven in a way that no one in the room had ever imagined. 
Rather than being a single kingdom, it was organized into various kingdoms of glory. Expanding on the Apostle Paul's description of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, Joseph and Sidney saw and described specific details about each kingdom. The Lord prepared telestial glory for those who had been wicked and unrepentant on earth, terrestrial glory for those who had lived honorably in life but had not fully obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, celestial glory was for those who accepted Christ, made and kept gospel covenants, and inherited the fullness of God's glory. The Lord revealed more about heaven and the resurrection to Joseph and Sidney, but told them not to record it. They are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, he explained, which God bestows on those who love him and purify themselves before him. When the vision closed, Sidney looked limp and pale, overcome by what he had seen. Joseph smiled and said, Sidney is not used to it as I am. <laughs> I love that. What an amazing experience. And how great to recognize that there is still more to learn about heaven, the resurrection, and so forth. You know, what we've revealed now is incredible. But more to learn that the Lord may reveal as we're ready to understand it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting that they had this magnificent vision in a room with 12 other people who didn't see it? All they yeah. could see is that Joseph and Sidney had gone very still and were describing things to each other, but they didn't see the vision. Yeah, that is interesting. Notice, too, how the study of Scripture opened the way to Revelation. This is such a good lesson for us. Yes, we at Scripture Gems heartily endorse the idea of studying your scriptures and receiving revelation from your study. Absolutely. One of my favorite quotes on this topic, Elder Dallin H. Oaks quoted Elder McConkie in an Enzyme article in January 1995. He says that Elder McConkie said, I sometimes think that one of the best kept secrets in the kingdom is that the scriptures open the door to the receipt of revelation. Elder Oaks responds to that quote by saying, this happens because scripture reading puts us in tune with the spirit of the Lord. We've seen that throughout, starting with the first vision, how scripture study opens the door to the receipt of revelation. And we've seen it throughout these revelations, how they've pondered things that they've been studying. But here again, studying a particular verse of scripture has opened up the doors of revelation. And we've talked about this before on the show repeatedly, and we will continue to talk about that. The notion that even if you don't understand what you read, take a look at this example. They were pondering the meaning of John chapter 5, verse 29, and they didn't fully understand what they read. But the fact that they dedicated that time to the study of the Word of God, to tune themselves into the Spirit of God, that's what brings forth revelation and understanding. That's the key. Yep, absolutely. So let's start here in verse 5 and look at the Lord's promise to the faithful. For thus saith the Lord, I the Lord am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. Great shall be their reward and eternal shall be their glory and to them will I reveal all mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom, from days of old and for ages to come, will I make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom. Yea, even the wonders of eternity shall they know, and things to come will I show them, even the things of many generations. And their wisdom shall be great, and their understanding reach to heaven. And before them, the wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent shall come to naught. For by my spirit will I enlighten them, and by my power will I make known unto them the secrets of my will. Yea, even those things which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor yet entered into the heart of man. That phrase in verse 10 at the beginning about enlightening them. The idea there, remember, is to increase the light that is inside of them, to enlighten 
them. And what a great visual for what we can become and how that impacts our understanding, the increased light that we could allow into us through the Spirit. Absolutely. From the Institute Manual, we get a quote from the Prophet Joseph Smith. This comes from the manual Teachings of Presidents of the Church, Joseph Smith. He says, quote, It is the privilege of the children of God to come to God and get revelation. God is not a respecter of persons. We all have the same privilege. We believe that we have a right to revelations, visions, and dreams from God, our Heavenly Father, and light and intelligence through the gift of the Holy Ghost in the name of Jesus Christ on all subjects pertaining to our spiritual welfare. If it so be that we keep his commandments so as to render ourselves worthy in his sight, a person may profit by noticing the first intimation of the spirit of revelation. For instance, when you feel pure intelligence flowing into you, it may give you sudden strokes of ideas so that by noticing it, you may find it fulfilled the same day or soon, i.e., those things that were presented unto your minds by the Spirit of God will come to pass. And thus, by learning the Spirit of God and understanding it, you may grow into the principle of revelation until you become perfect in Christ Jesus. End quote. It's something for all of us. Yes. Each of us can take that opportunity to commune with the Father and receive revelation. What a privilege. If we take a look in verse 11, we have kind of the introduction by Joseph and Sidney to the vision. And notice, too, that what we share in these next few verses is a fulfillment of the promises we just read in verses 5 through 10. Verse 11, we, Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon, being in the spirit on the 16th day of February in the year of our Lord, 1832, by the power of the Spirit, our eyes were opened and our understandings were enlightened so as to see and understand the things of God, even those things which were from the beginning before the world was, which were ordained of the Father through his only begotten Son who was in the bosom of the Father, even from the beginning. From the Institute Manual, Elder Kimby Clark of the Seventy from a general conference talk October 2015, testified of this, If we look to Christ and open our eyes and our ears, the Holy Ghost will bless us to see the Lord Jesus Christ working in our lives, strengthening our faith in him with assurance and evidence. We increasingly will see all of our brothers and sisters, the way God sees them, with love and compassion. We will hear the Savior's voice in the scriptures, in the whisperings of the Spirit, and in the words of the living prophets. We will see the power of God resting upon his prophet and all the leaders of his true and living church. And we will know with assurity that this is God's holy work. We will see and understand ourselves and the world around us, the way the Savior does, we will come to have what the Apostle Paul called the mind of Christ. We will have eyes to see and ears to hear, and we will build the kingdom of God. What a promise. Yeah. Going on in verse 19, and while we meditated upon these things, here he's referring to John 5, 29, and the current understanding of the afterlife in Joseph's day. Going on in the verse, the Lord touched the eyes of our understandings and they were opened and the glory of the Lord shone round about. Elder D. Todd Christofferson from a conference talk in April 2004 had this to say, quote, when I say study, I mean something more than reading. I see you sometimes reading a few verses, stopping to ponder them, carefully reading the verses again, and as you think about what they mean, praying for understanding, asking questions in your mind, waiting for spiritual impressions, and writing down the impressions and insights that come so you can remember and learn more. Studying in this way, you may not read a lot of chapters or verses in a half hour, 
but you will be giving place in your heart for the word of God, and he will be speaking to you. What a wonderful testimony of that. This quote's found in the seminary manual. That's great. Especially when we think about verse 19 and that idea of meditating upon these things. We can do the same. So let's look for what they saw and heard. Going on to verse 20. And we beheld the glory of the Son on the right hand of the Father, and received of his fullness, and saw the holy angels and them who are sanctified before his throne, worshiping God and the Lamb, who worship him forever and ever. And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony last of all which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him, even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. What a beautiful testimony. I love that testimony. It always moves me whenever I read it. It's such a great, powerful manifestation of that truth. And you could feel the truth of it. Yes. And it's interesting that that testimony was included when the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve created the living Christ, the testimony of the apostles back in January 1st of 2000. They also included their own additional testimony toward the end of that document. They say, quote, We bear testimony as his duly ordained apostles that Jesus is the living Christ, the immortal Son of God. He is the great King Emmanuel who stands today on the right hand of his Father. He is the light, the life, and the hope of the world. His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. God be thanked for the matchless gift of his divine son, end quote. Wonderful. Now, it's interesting to note that after this divine manifestation and testimony of Jesus Christ's divinity, there is another testimony of sorts, a witness that they have. Let's take a look at it in verse 25. And this we saw also, and bear record, that an angel of God who was in authority in the presence of God, who rebelled against the only begotten Son, whom the Father loved, and who was in the bosom of the Father, was thrust down from the presence of God and the Son. Going on to verse 28, And while we were yet in the Spirit, the Lord commanded us that we should write the vision. For we beheld Satan that old serpent, even the devil, who rebelled against God and sought to take the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Wherefore he maketh war with the saints of God and encompasseth them round about. Now, before we move on, I'd like to point out something about the beginning of verse 28, where it says that the Lord commanded us to write the vision while they were yet in the spirit. This is from the book Joseph Smith's Revelations in the Gospel Library app. It says how or precisely when Joseph Smith and Rigdon recorded the experience of seeing the vision is unknown. According to the written account of the vision, Joseph Smith and Rigdon were commanded four separate times to record what they were seeing. It may be that they made a record after each command and then proceeded. Alternatively, Joseph Smith and Rigdon may not have recorded anything until after the vision concluded. They were instructed to write their account while they were yet in the spirit, and the text in the account indicates that they did so. If Joseph Smith and Rigdon recorded the event after its conclusion, therefore, they apparently did so soon thereafter. Hmm. So let's go back to verse 31 and learn about those who choose to follow Satan. Verse 31. Thus saith the Lord concerning all those who know my power and have been partakers thereof and suffered themselves through the power of the devil to be overcome and to deny the truth and defy my power. They are they who are the sons of perdition, of whom I say that it had been better for them never to have been born. Notice, though, it makes it really clear in verse 31 that they suffered themselves 
to be overcome. It was a choice. This isn't something we stumble into. They suffered themselves. They allowed themselves to choose the devil over God. Let's look ahead in verse 35. Look for what else you need to do in order to become a son of perdition. Verse 35, having denied the Holy Spirit after having received it, and having denied the only begotten Son of the Father, having crucified him unto themselves and put him to an open shame, these are they who shall go away into the lake of fire and brimstone with the devil and his angels. When we talk about becoming sons of perdition, it is really important for us to understand that this is not something that will happen by accident, as Jay pointed out. This would be a conscious choice. And for those who have embraced that, it's not something that you will find at the end of your life and you will look back on the works of your life and think, oh, oh no, I guess I've become a son of perdition. (laughs) Darn. You'll know that. It's a choice. There's a great quote that I really love from the history of the church. This is the prophet Joseph Smith talking about the concept of being a son of perdition. This is quoted in the Institute Manual. He says, quote, All sins shall be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Ghost. For Jesus will save all except the sons of perdition. What must a man do to commit the unpardonable sin? He must receive the Holy Ghost, have the heavens opened unto him, and know God, and then sin against him. After a man has sinned against the Holy Ghost, there is no repentance for him. He has got to say that the sun does not shine while he sees it. He has got to deny Jesus Christ when the heavens have been opened unto him and to deny the plan of salvation with his eyes open to the truth of it, end quote. That's a great clarification. You have to know it can't be a matter of faith any longer. There has to be knowledge. And then, in spite of that knowledge, to refute it. To say that the sun does not shine while you are looking at it and can see that it shines. Yeah, it's not something we stumble into. Nope. But let's go back to the Revelation. In verse 40, we get this powerful testimony of the mission of Christ. And this is the gospel the glad tidings which the voice out of the heavens bore record unto us, that he came into the world, even Jesus, to be crucified for the world and to bear the sins of the world and to sanctify the world and to cleanse it from all unrighteousness, that through him all might be saved whom the Father hath put into his power and made by him, who glorifies the Father and saves all the works of his hands, except those sons of perdition who deny the Son after the Father has revealed him. Isn't that interesting how fresh and like a ray of sunshine that feels after the testimony of the devil and his intentions and those who follow him? And then we get this ray of sunshine in these verses, the glad tidings that Jesus Christ is here for all who will receive him. Now, notice in verse 43, that phrase, who glorifies the Father and saves all the works of his hands, except those sons of perdition. Does he really save all? From the Institute Manual, we get this quote from then Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve. This comes from April 1998 General Conference. He says, quote, as Latter-day Saints use the words saved and salvation, There are at least six different meanings. According to some of these, our salvation is assured. We are already saved. In others, salvation must be spoken of as a future event or as conditioned upon a future event. But in all these meanings or kinds of salvation, salvation is in and through Jesus Christ. For Latter-day Saints, being saved can mean being saved or delivered from the second death, meaning the final spiritual death, by assurance of a kingdom of glory in the world to come. Just as the resurrection is universal, we affirm that every person who ever lived upon the face of the earth, except for a very few, is assured of salvation in this sense. 
The prophet Brigham Young taught that doctrine when he declared that every person who does not sin away the day of grace and become an angel to the devil will be brought forth to inherit a kingdom of glory. This meaning of saved ennobles the whole human race through the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In another usage familiar and unique to Latter-day Saints, the words saved and salvation are also used to denote exaltation or eternal life. This is sometimes referred to as the fullness of salvation. This salvation requires more than repentance and baptism by appropriate priesthood authority. It also requires the making of sacred covenants, including eternal marriage in the temples of God and faithfulness to those covenants by enduring to the end. End quote. Important clarification. That is really good counsel and important to think about when we look at those words. Let's go on in verse 50. And again, we bear record, for we saw and heard, and this is the testimony of the gospel of Christ, concerning them who shall come forth in the resurrection of the just. Now, this is something that we've looked at before, this idea of the resurrection of the just, sometimes called the first resurrection. And I mentioned that a really good summary of this is found in the book Gospel Principles in chapter 44. But let me just read that section now so that we've got a good sense of it going forward. From the Gospel Principles book, after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, other righteous people who had died were also resurrected. They appeared in Jerusalem and also on the American continent. This was the beginning of the first resurrection. Some people have been resurrected since then. Those who already have been resurrected and those who will be resurrected at the time of his coming will all inherit the glory of the celestial kingdom. After the resurrection of those who will inherit celestial glory, another group will be resurrected, those who will receive a terrestrial glory. When all these people have been resurrected, the first resurrection will be completed. So, my question to us is, what do we need to do to be a part of this first group, the resurrection of the just? And let's find out in verse 51. They are they who received the testimony of Jesus and believed on his name and were baptized after the manner of his burial, being buried in the water in his name, and this according to the commandment which he has given, that by keeping the commandments, they might be washed and cleansed from all their sins and receive the Holy Spirit by the laying on of the hands of him who is ordained and sealed unto this power and who overcome by faith and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which the Father sheds forth upon all those who are just and true. There's a neat label there, the Holy Spirit of promise. It shows up several times. From the Institute Manual, we have a clarification on that from Elder David A. Bednar. This is from April 2007 General Conference. He says, quote, The Holy Spirit of promise is the ratifying power of the Holy Ghost. When sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, an ordinance, vow, or covenant is binding on earth and in heaven. Receiving this stamp of approval from the Holy Ghost is the result of faithfulness, integrity, steadfastness in honoring gospel covenants in the process of time. However, this sealing can be forfeited through unrighteousness and transgression. End quote. Now, in the coming verses, verses 54 through 68, it lists many of the blessings the exalted inhabitants of the celestial kingdom will receive. Let's look at a few of these. In verse 54, it says, They are they who are the church of the firstborn. Now, notice it doesn't necessarily say that they are in the church of the firstborn, but they are the church of the firstborn. It's about who we become, not where our membership records are. Verse 55, they are they into whose hands the Father has given all things. They are they who are priests and kings who have received of his fullness and of his glory. Take a look in verse 58, wherefore, as it is written, they are gods, even the sons of God, wherefore all things are theirs. The Institute Manual had a great quote from President Boyd K. Packer. 
that I really wanted to include here, cementing this idea. This is from October 1984 General Conference. He says, quote, Since every living thing follows the pattern of its parentage, are we to suppose that God had some other strange pattern in mind for his offspring? Surely we, his children, are not, in the language of science, a different species than he is. We may now be young in our progression, juvenile, even infantile, compared with him. Nevertheless, in the eternities to come, if we are worthy, we may be like unto him, enter his presence, see as we are seen, and know as we are known, and receive a fullness. End quote. Such a good perspective, too, that it's about receiving and becoming, unifying ourselves with who God is. Well, let's go back to the section, verse 62. These shall dwell in the presence of God and his Christ forever and ever. These are they whom he shall bring with him when he shall come in the clouds of heaven to reign on the earth over his people. Now, these, again, we're talking about the celestial beings. Verse 69 These are they who are just men made perfect through Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, who wrought out this perfect atonement through the shedding of his own blood. These are they whose bodies are celestial, whose glory is that of the sun, even the glory of God, the highest of all, whose glory the sun of the firmament is written of as being typical. This is so important to remember what a great list if you read all those verses of the amazing things that are part of what it means to inherit a celestial glory. But remember that our best efforts to keep all the commandments don't make us perfect. They don't make us celestial. This is only possible as we unify our efforts with the grace of Jesus Christ. To further encourage that idea, we have from the Institute Manual a quote from President Russell M. Nelson. This is from his general conference talk in October 1995 called Perfection Pending. It's a great talk. Yeah, we love that one. He says, quote, Brothers and sisters, let us do the best we can and try to improve each day. When our imperfections appear, we can keep trying to correct them. We can be more forgiving of flaws in ourselves and among those we love. We can be comforted and forbearing. The Lord taught, Ye are not able to abide the presence of God now. Wherefore, continue in patience until ye are perfected. We need not be dismayed if our earnest efforts toward perfection now seem so arduous and endless. Perfection is pending. It can come in full only after the resurrection and only through the Lord. It awaits all who love him and keep his commandments. It includes thrones, kingdoms, principalities, powers, and dominions. It is the end for which we are to endure. It is the eternal perfection that God has in store for each of us. End quote. I love that. Wonderful. Great encouragement. So that's the celestial. What about other kingdoms? Yeah, let's take a look at the terrestrial in verse 71. And again, we saw the terrestrial world. And behold, and lo, these are they who are of the terrestrial, whose glory differs from that of the church of the firstborn, who have received the fullness of the Father, even as that of the moon differs from the sun in the firmament. Now, there's an interesting reminder here that the glory we inherit is dependent on what we are willing to receive. Notice it says, who have received the fullness of the Father. Go back and review the celestial description and see all that those people are willing to receive. Isn't that interesting how much this is dependent on us? Going on in verse 72, Behold, these are they who died without law, and also they who are the spirits of men kept in prison, whom the Son visited, and preached the gospel unto them, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, who received not the testimony of Jesus in the flesh, but afterwards received it. 
Speaking of these descriptions, the Lord gave additional insights into those individuals when he revealed to Joseph Smith the final destiny of his brother Alvin, who died before he could be baptized. This is found later in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 137, verses 7 through 9. Spoilers! Yeah. (laughs) Remember that Christ our Savior, and this is in verse 9 of that section, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. The Lord's got us covered. Let's keep going in verse 75. These are they who are honorable men of the earth, who were blinded by the craftiness of men. These are they who receive of his glory, but not of his fullness. These are they who receive of the presence of the Son, but not of the fullness of the Father. Ask yourself this question. Thinking of verse 77, what are we willing to receive? We are the limiting factor, not what God is willing to give us. What are we willing to receive? Let's go on to verse 78. Wherefore, they are bodies terrestrial and not bodies celestial and differ in glory as the moon differs from the sun. These are they who are not valiant in the testimony of Jesus. Wherefore, they obtain not the crown over the kingdom of our God. Elder Bruce R. McConkie in the October 1974 General Conference talks about being valiant. He says, to be valiant in the testimony of Jesus is to endure to the end. It is to live our religion, to practice what we preach, to keep the commandments. That's great. And further along that line, we have a quote from the Institute Manual. This is from Elder Quentin L. Cook from October 2014 General Conference. He says, quote, My prayer is that we will make our conduct consistent with the noble purposes required of those who are in the service of the Master. In all things, we should remember that being valiant in the testimony of Jesus is the great dividing test between the celestial and terrestrial kingdoms. We want to be found on the celestial side of that divide, end quote. Nice. But it's always our choice, right? It is. If we're not valiant in the testimony of Jesus, it's because we choose not to be. That's up to us. All right, let's take a look at the next division of glory, starting in verse 81. And again, we saw the glory of the telestial, which glory is that of the lesser, even as the glory of the stars differs from the glory of the moon and the firmament. These are they who received not the gospel of Christ, neither the testimony of Jesus. These are they who deny not the Holy Spirit. If we jump ahead to verse 101, it adds an additional insight, but received not the gospel, neither the testimony of Jesus, neither the prophets, neither the everlasting covenant. Going on back in verse 84, these are they who are thrust down to hell. These are they who shall not be redeemed from the devil until the last resurrection, until the Lord, even Christ, the Lamb, shall have finished his work. By the way, in the same way that we talked about the various definitions of saved that Elder Oaks did, if you're interested in the various understandings of hell, recommend going to your gospel topics and looking up hell in there. It has a great article to give you a sense of what we're talking about. Now, going on in verses 104 to 106, those who inherit the celestial kingdom must suffer in hell before they are redeemed by the Savior when he completes his work. Note, though, in verse 105, the phrase eternal fire is used there. This is a figurative expression that refers to the suffering of the wicked who will inherit the celestial kingdom. It does not mean that their suffering will never end. And we talked about this earlier in episode 9 when we talked about Doctrine and Covenants 19, 4 through 12. And that helps define how eternal fire is meant to be understood. The Institute Manual had a great summary of the plan of salvation from Elder Quentin L. Cook. This is from a different talk he did in April 2009 General Conference. He says, quote, At death, righteous spirits live in a temporary state called paradise. Alma the Younger teaches us, Paradise is a state of rest, a state of peace, 
where the righteous shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. The unrighteous spirits dwell in spirit prison, sometimes referred to as hell. It is described as an awful place, a dark place, where those fearful of the indignation of the wrath of God shall remain until the resurrection. However, because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, all spirits blessed by birth will ultimately be resurrected, spirit and body reunited, and inherit kingdoms of glory that are superior to our existence here on earth. The exceptions are confined to those who, like Satan and his angels, willfully rebel against God. End quote. That's the point we've been trying to emphasize is it's about what we are willing, whether we're willing to receive or willing to rebel. Let's go back to the section now. In verse 89, we get a description of these various glories and comparing them to each other. Verse 89, And thus we saw in the heavenly vision the glory of the telestial, which surpasses all understanding. Interesting. Now think about that for a minute. This is the least of the kingdoms those that are described as the stars differing from the sun. And yet that kingdom surpasses all understanding. Wow. Verse 90, And no man knows it except him to whom God has revealed it. And thus we saw the glory of the terrestrial, which excels in all things the glory of the telestial, even in glory and in power and in might and in dominion. And thus we saw the glory of the celestial, which excels in all things, where God, even the Father, reigns upon his throne forever and ever, before whose throne all things bow in humble reverence and give him glory forever and ever. They who dwell in his presence are the church of the firstborn, and they who see as they are seen and know as they are known, having received of his fullness and of his grace, and he makes them equal in power and in might and in dominion. And the glory of the celestial is one, even as the glory of the sun is one. And the glory of the terrestrial is one, even as the glory of the moon is one. And the glory of the telestial is one, even as the glory of the stars is one. For as one star differs from another star in glory, even so differs one from another in glory in the telestial world. Now, going on with the idea that the least of these glories surpass all our understanding, we have a quote from the Institute Manual. This is Elder John A. Witzo from his book, The Messages of the Doctrine and Covenants. He says, quote, The Doctrine and Covenants explains clearly that the lowest glory to which man is assigned is so glorious as to be beyond the understanding of man. It is a doctrine fundamental in Mormonism that the meanest sinner— in the final judgment, will receive a glory which is beyond human understanding, which is so great that we are unable to describe it adequately. Those who do well will receive an even more glorious place. The gospel is a gospel of tremendous love. Love is at the bottom of it. The meanest child of God is loved so dearly that his reward will be beyond the understanding of mortal man." End quote. That's so incredible. It really is. If you think about it in the broad sense of the plan of salvation, the key here was the decision in our preexistence to follow Jesus Christ and receive a body. That move, that decision, gave us a kingdom of glory. Again, unless we willfully rebel against it through clear knowledge, not faith. Yeah. You know, the sun, the moon, and the stars, obviously— that's a description of the level of glory. It gives us a good comparison. But I'd love to share this with you. My third son, Brendan, made a wonderful suggestion after learning about this in seminary and came up with the idea of using smiley emojis to describe the telestial, terrestrial, and celestial. And I love how it humanizes it. So take a look at this. Here we have the telestial. Of course, it's still a smiley face. It surpasses all understanding. But what about the terrestrial? What about this smiley face? And then what about the celestial? In other words, when we think of the plan of salvation, and maybe this is a great way to share it with your kids, how much 
happiness do we want? How much joy do we want? That reminds me of President Oaks's famous general conference talk about good, better, and best. Exactly. That's a great comparison. And then, of course, you know, we do have the sons of perdition, so that's a frowny face. But outside <laughs> of that, the rest of this, you know, it's smiley faces. How much joy do we want? How many blessings do we want? And it's up to us. That's a great way to think about it. And it's a great way to understand the love of our Heavenly Father to us and yeah. his willingness to give us so much. Let's go back to the section. In verse 109, we get a summary of the destiny of the telestial. Verse 109, But behold and lo, we saw the glory and the inhabitants of the telestial world, that they were as innumerable as the stars in the firmament of heaven, or as the sand upon the seashore, and heard the voice of the Lord saying, These all shall bow the knee. And every tongue shall confess to him who sits upon the throne forever and ever. For they shall be judged according to their works. And every man shall receive, according to his own works, his own dominion in the mansions which are prepared. And they shall be servants of the Most High. But where God and Christ shall dwell, they cannot come, worlds without end." Now, again, we've been emphasizing this whole lesson about the concept of this is our choice, what we choose to receive. Notice in verse 111, every man shall receive according to his own works, his own dominion. That really kind of applies to all of the dominions. It's according to what we desire, what we want to receive, what we've become. Yeah, and that's in everybody's control. And here's something else maybe to think about. You know, we have a list of these various things. Sometimes we can be tempted to judge people by those lists of the celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. Resist that urge. We have no idea where people are starting. We don't know the intents of people's hearts, the limitations they have because of the mortal world, what's been their background. We don't have either the authority or the information to judge someone else. No. So don't try to decide. And even for yourself, I would be careful of saying, oh, I'm, you know, here's where I'm going to go. Where do you want to go? And then just keep working on becoming that kind of a person. Don't grade yourself by comparing yourself to others. Grade yourself by what the Lord is expecting of you. Use him as the mirror. Don't compare yourself to other people. That is not what this is intended to do. And remember that we had encouraged in an earlier lesson for you to regularly check in with the Lord. What's the next thing that I need to work on? Because I really want this. I really want to be with you in the celestial kingdom. Yeah. So what is the next thing that I need to work on so that I can get there? That's all we need to do. That's the mirror we need to have. It's between you and the Lord. And don't compare yourself to others. Are you a little better today than you were yesterday? Keep using the Lord, his standards, his spirit to help you to move forward. That's the intention. Let's take a look at the conclusion here, starting in verse 113. This is the end of the vision which we saw, which we were commanded to write while we were yet in the spirit. But great and marvelous are the works of the Lord and the mysteries of his kingdom, which he showed unto us, which surpass all understanding in glory and in might and in dominion, which he commanded us we should not write while we were yet in the spirit and are not lawful for man to utter. So once again, there was more revealed here than has been written down. Right. Now let's take a look going forward how we can come to see and understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. He tells us, starting in verse 116, neither is man capable to make them known, for they are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, which God bestows on those who love him and purify themselves before him, to whom he grants this privilege of seeing and knowing for themselves, that through the power and manifestation of the Spirit, while in the flesh, they may be able to bear his presence in the world of glory. And to God and the Lamb 
be glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Such a powerful ending and such an amazing revelation. What a vision. This is one of the most distinctive doctrines of the restored Church of Jesus Christ, and it is amazing. We talked about in those last few verses that they received more information than they wrote down. But notice in verse 116, neither is man capable to make them known. There are things that they received in that vision of the Holy Ghost that we are just not able to communicate. From the Institute Manual, we get a quote from the prophet Joseph Smith. This is from the history of the church. He says, quote, I could explain a hundredfold more than I ever have of the glories of the kingdoms manifested to me in the vision, were I permitted and were the people prepared to receive it. The Lord deals with this people as a tender parent with a child, communicating light and intelligence and the knowledge of his ways as they can hear it, end quote. And yeah. speaking of that, how could they hear it? How was this received? Yeah, notice that even though we're done with the revelation, there's still a bit of the show left to go. We thought you guys might be interested in finding out how members of the church at this time received this doctrine. I think if you've been a member of the church for a while, we may take for granted how special this understanding of the life to come is. So let's take a look. This is from the Institute Manual. Also, again, a reference to Revelations in Context, which covers this in even more detail. In Joseph Smith's day, Christians generally believed that in the post-mortal life, God would assign some people to heaven and condemn all others to suffer eternally in hell. This view was common among the early members of the church. The prophet's father, Joseph Smith Sr., and the prophet's grandfather, Asel Smith, believed in universalism, a type of universal salvation in which God would eventually save the wicked after they had suffered sufficiently. The truths that were revealed in the vision recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 76 describe distinct levels of heaven or kingdoms of glory and how the judgment of the wicked and the righteous differed greatly from traditional religious views of life after death. When the saints learned of the vision given to the prophet Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, some members struggled to accept the doctrine that the Lord had revealed. President Brigham Young related, When God revealed to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon that there was a place prepared for all according to the light they had received and their rejection of evil and practice of good, it was a great trial to many. And some apostatized because God was not going to send to everlasting punishment heathens and infants, but had a place of salvation in due time for all and would bless the honest and virtuous and truthful, whether they ever belonged to any church or not. It was a new doctrine to this generation, and many stumbled at it. Brigham Young himself had difficulty understanding this doctrine at first. He recalled, My traditions were such that when the vision came first to me, it was directly contrary and opposed to my former education. I said, Wait a little. I did not reject it, but I could not understand it. By the way, this is one of my favorite things about Brigham. Here he has something that challenges even core beliefs, and he's willing to just wait a minute, give himself time to think about it. And even though he couldn't understand it, he didn't reject it. He gave himself time. Going on, it says, he said that he needed to think and pray to read and think until he knew and fully understood it for himself. By the way, later in the Journal of Discourses, he says of this revelation, I can truly say that in my estimation, no other revelation so glorious was ever given. Wow, ain't that the truth? Think about that transition, that change of heart that happened because he was willing to think and pray and read and think until he knew he understood it and he would not reject it until he had given the Lord his due time. Sometimes we hear something and give it two seconds of consideration and reject it. 
give it a little bit more, especially when it's a declaration from the Lord's servants. Give ourselves time and be patient with ourselves until we can understand it and feel what Brigham did about something like this. We need to be so careful when we are presented with something that conflicts with our own beliefs at the time. Think about the Jews at the time of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. These were not men who were deliberately trying to be evil, who sought to crucify Jesus Christ. They were attempting to defend the faith of God. They believed that they were correct. And it wasn't until some were able to humble themselves and receive the knowledge and light from Jesus Christ to understand that their previous understanding was mistaken and to correct their course, to repent, that's when the miracles happen. That's when we change. That's when we become more like our Father in heaven. And we all need to do that. Even today, we need to be prepared to shift our thoughts and beliefs and understandings to the new knowledge that our Father in heaven is inevitably going to grant unto us when we are ready. Yep. Great point. I wanted to include one more thing. This is from the Come Follow Me manual in a section below called Voices of the Restoration. This was Wilfred Woodruff's reaction to the vision. It says, Wilfred Woodruff joined the church in December 1833, nearly two years after Joseph and Sidney Rigdon received the vision recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 76. He was living in New York at the time and learned about the vision from missionaries serving in the area. Years later, he spoke of his impressions of this revelation. I was taught from my childhood that there was one heaven and one hell and was told that the wicked all had one punishment and the righteous one glory. When I read the vision... It enlightened my mind and gave me great joy. It appeared to me that the God who revealed that principle unto man was wise, just, and true, possessed both the best of attributes and good sense and knowledge. I felt he was consistent with both love, mercy, justice, and judgment. And I felt to love the Lord more than ever before in my life. The vision is a revelation which gives more light, more truth, and more principle than any revelation contained in any other book we ever read. It makes plain to our understanding, our present condition, where we came from, why we are here, and where we are going to. Any man may know through that revelation what his part and condition will be. Before I saw Joseph, I said I did not care how old he was or how young he was. I did not care how he looked, whether his hair was long or short. The man that advanced that revelation was a prophet of God. I knew it for myself. <laughs> oh, so That's good. awesome. What a great testimony. As a final thought, as we've talked today about our reward in the world to come, having everything to do with desire. If you're interested in understanding that idea further, I would encourage you to study the word desire. You can run a word search in your gospel library app and look in the scriptures and the words of living prophets. Once you begin looking for the word desire and the effect that it has on our salvation, you're going to find it all over the place. Christ's grace not only empowers us to do good, but can empower us to desire good if we invite him into our hearts. Yes, we through Christ can change our desires. You'll see that as you study this topic. I'll give you one example. In the days of King Benjamin, after he was preaching from the tower at the temple to his people in Mosiah chapter 5 verses 2 and 3, it says that the spirit of the Lord omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. And we ourselves also, through the infinite goodness of God and the manifestations of his spirit, have great views of that which is to come. Look at the perspective change that happens when we allow the spirit of the Lord omnipotent 
to make a change in our heart. We can decide to do that. Have you, in studying the vision this week, had a great view of that which is to come, to use the words of the people in Mosiah 5? What will you do this week to be more valiant in the testimony of Jesus? What will you do to invite his spirit into your heart and life? As I've asked those questions, the spirit may have prompted a thought to your mind. Don't reject it. Don't forget it. Jot it down and figure out how you're going to act on it. And don't try to do it yourself. Turn to the Savior and let him change you so that you're willing to receive all that our Father desires to give us. Keep reading your scriptures. Remember, that's your key to tuning into the Spirit of the Lord. And remember, as we think about the plan of salvation, in Moses' words, let's choose life. Do it. Choose the greatest happiness that the Father wants to give us. Mm -hmm. He really wants us to be happy, and he's so anxious to have us receive that, but we need to receive it. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>